This is a message from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. Grace Church is affiliated with Sovereign Grace Ministries. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. The speaker for this message is Craig Cabanis, the senior pastor of Grace Church. Good to be together. Open up your Bibles, if you have one, to 1 Chronicles. 1 Chronicles. That's in the Old Testament. And uh, we're going to look at 1 Chronicles 29. 1 Chronicles 29. But before we turn there and read this, uh, it's really a fascinating section of Scripture, I think. Uh, Before we read that and jump into it, uh, I'd like to pray and just ask for uh, God's blessing on our time uh, today in our study of God's Word. God, we come before you today and we posture ourselves Uh, lowly before you as those who need to hear a word from you. God, based on the testimony which we just heard, we want to, first of all, not only pray for others, but we we also just want to thank you and appropriately thank you that we have a scripture on our lap this morning, Lord, that you've seen fit to get us the Bible. We, We are blown away by that, and we just want to say thank you. And as we open it today, we we want to do it as those who are who are aware of the privilege, and of those who are hungering and thirsting after you. Lord, we pray we wouldn't take this word for granted, but we pray that you would speak to us through it. I pray that you would fill me with the Spirit to open this text, and that you would speak through this text into every heart in the room. Lord, change us as we look at this passage today. Give us ears to hear and hearts to respond. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we've been in a series called Prepare for the Square, which is a preparatory series as we are uh, preparing to uh, relocate, in some ways sort of replant into Frisco Square. And um, so what we did was we looked at that and said, what kind of a church do we think God would call us to be if we were there and back it up and say, let's be that church today. Let's see what the scripture says. And regardless of where we gather on Sundays, let's be people who are responding to God's word and uh, who are obeying him today. So because of that, we've been talking about the church's mission for several weeks, our mission in particular. Last week, we talk, last week we talked about prepare through prayer, that we are to pray for open doors. We looked at a lot of scripture about that. For that, we talked about prepare to declare, how we gather and declare the praises of God so that others can hear and be exposed to him as we gather. We talked about the Great Commission, making disciples. We talked about making disciples who love God, who love one another, and who love the law. So that's kind of been where we've been these past few weeks, and today we're going to talk about prepare to share. And by share, I don't mean share the gospel, but the passage we're talking, we've been talking about that, but the passage I'm looking at is about sharing our resources and our finances. This is a message on giving. Yesterday, I uh, was watching a concert of a band that I've seen in concert, uh, but this was very different. It was a live stream of a band that was doing a house show. Now, a house show is usually an acoustic show like in a family room or a living room or some sort. And this was kind of like that. I couldn't really tell because it was a very small group, but you could only, they were doing this acoustic set in front of a small group. They were like in a studio or, I don't know, some very small little place. And there were several bands. I was just watching this live stream and uh, very intimate setting. And after one of the bands, this, the host of the 
of the event stands up and she's holding this cowboy hat and uh, she says, well, she's very sheepish. She's like, well, okay, sorry, but okay, now's the time. I'm going to kind of pass the hat. We have to pay for our live stream and, and another couple of other things. And so if you can, if you would give, and you know, I felt bad for her. She was having to raise money for these people who came to a free concert. And uh, so I just thought as I watched her and felt for her, I thought I'm not going to be that lady tomorrow when I talk on giving. Uh, I'm, I'm not going to do an aw shucks because I don't think that's what the Bible says. Instead, I'm going to start off with the words of Jesus. How about that? Acts 20, Jesus is quoted by Lucas saying, it is more blessed to give than it is to receive. The position of the scripture is that there is more joy, there is more blessing, there is more a sense of God's presence, there's more life in giving than there is receiving. Now, we tend to think just the opposite. We think, man, it's great when I get something. But the Bible teaches that it is more blessed for us to give. As we give, we are imitating God, who is a giver, the ultimate giver. He gave his son for our salvation. And as we think about where we are as a church, we have received something tremendous. You know, we've received a gift that it's easy to become familiar with. We received a gift of land. We'll be talking about this tonight and Wednesday night um, in the congregational meetings. But we have received a gift of land over in Frisco Square in the heart of our city. And we received it a few years ago. And it's very easy just to be totally familiar. Oh, yeah, I've heard that story. I know about it. And uh, when I tell that story to people, they're, they're like amazed. And I've had some people from out of town. I've driven them by there and say, yeah, that was land that was given to us. They're blown away by that. They say, you guys received that gift. That is so amazing. That is choice. But I believe the greater blessing lies in front of us as a church. The greater blessing is not receiving. The greater blessing is giving. And as wonderful as that gift is, to this church for the purpose of proclaiming the gospel in the heart of our city, as wonderful as that is, it's going to be far greater, a far greater blessing, a far greater joy to give and to watch God build something and gather a people in the heart of our city so that we can reach the city, this region, and beyond this region, that we could be a ministry sending center, a ministry base for not only reaching and preaching the gospel locally, but for doing that at great distances, even across the world is my prayer and our prayer that that's what God would enable us to do. So we have before us an opportunity for joy, an opportunity for worship. It's not an aw shucks moment. I know this is so awkward, but uh, it's not that at all. It's, it's more blessed to give than it is to receive. And I want us to be a people who receive this blessing with joy. There's a passage of scripture that we're going to look at this morning where this kind of a blessing of the people of God gathering together, rallying together to give to the Lord in worship. There's a passage of scripture that reveals that and tells that story in a in a wonderful way that I want us to look at together. So we're going to read the bulk of chapter 29 in 1 Chronicles, but I'm going to read just the first few verses and we'll work our way through, and then we'll read a section at a time. So here's verse 1, 1 Chronicles 29. And David the king said to all the assembly, Solomon, my son, whom alone God has chosen, is young and inexperienced, and the work is great. For the palace will not be for man, but for the Lord God. So I have provided for the house of my God, so far as I was able, the gold for the things of gold, 
the silver for the things of silver, and the bronze for the things of bronze, the iron for the things of iron, and wood for the things of wood, besides great quantities of onyx and stones for setting, antimony, colored stones, all sorts of precious stones and marble. Moreover, in addition to all that I have provided for the holy house, I have a treasure of my own, of gold and silver. And because of my devotion to the house of my God, I give it to the house of my God. 3,000 talents of gold, of the gold of Ophir, and 7,000 talents of refined silver for overlaying the walls of the house and for all the work to be done by craftsmen, gold for the things of gold and silver for the things of silver. Who then will offer willingly, consecrating himself today to the Lord? Now, what David is doing is he's at the end of his, coming to the end of his life as the king in Israel, and he is preparing for the building of the temple. He's not going to build it. He's going to die. His son, Solomon, is going to build it. And that's why he's saying, I'm providing all the resources for my son to build this at the beginning of the chapter. And in verse, 29, uh, verse 2 of 29, he says, the work is great, for the palace will not be for man, but it will be for the Lord. So he's saying this is a great task, and the greatness of the task that he speaks of is tied to the purpose of the building. The greatness of the task is not, wow, this is going to be a monstrous temple I'm building, or can you believe how much gold is going to be in this building? He's not saying that's the greatness of the building, but he ties the greatness to its purpose that it will be not for man, verse 1, but for the Lord God. Now, before I get even into this much at all, I just want to make one thing very clear. I'm not drawing um, an identical similarity between David building the temple and any Christian church uh, today that would build a building. There are significant differences. First of all, all that the temple represented and all, that, all of its purposes have been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. There is no temple anymore. The sacrifices that were offered there were fulfilled in Jesus. Once and for all, he made a sacrifice. And there's no one spot on earth where God dwelt, dwells uniquely today as he did in the Holy of Holies of the temple. Now God dwells in a temple, but the New Testament says the temple is his people, the church. That's you and me. So God dwells in our gathering. So we're not, there's not one spot where the uh, Day of Atonement is held. We gather all over the world in di- various ways. God is among his people by his spirit. And so there are significant differences between what David is doing here and what any Christian church would be doing today. But there is a notable similarity And that's this, that David says the work is for God. It is a place, he is building a place that the people of God could encounter their God, could engage their God, could worship their God. And as we saw two weeks ago, it was also a location that a testimony to the nations could emanate from. The temple was a spot where the nations were called to worship and they could observe the work of God. So there is a, there is something powerful about a location where the gathered church comes together with God in their midst, not because of the building and the zip code of where it is, but because the people are there, and for ministry to emanate from there, to, be, to, to go forth from there, to take the gospel to places that need and to people that need the gospel, a place for the people of God to worship and to reach out from. There is something special about that.
Now, given the significance of the task, David prepares uh, by providing building materials. He says, verse 2, as I was able, provided gold, provided silver, provided bronze, iron, and wood, onyx, stones for setting, antimony, colored stones, all sorts of precious stones and marble. So he provides all of these things for the building of the house of the Lord. Now look in verse 3. What we learn in verse 3 is that all that he provides in chapter, in verse 2, all that he provides are from the national treasury. They're from Israel's treasury because he makes a distinction in verse 3. Moreover, in addition to all that I have provided for the holy house, I have a treasure of my own, of gold and silver. And because of my devotion to the house of my God, I give it to the house of my God, 3,000 talents of gold, the gold of Ophir, and 7,000 talents of refined silver for overlaying the walls of the house of God. So he gives from Israel's treasury, but then in verse 3 he says, I have a treasure of my own. The king would have a personal stash, a personal security, a personal savings account, a personal, uh, personal resources, finances, in this case gold and silver, wealth, set aside for his own protection. He had that so that he would be protected in case of... Um, Difficult circumstances, in case of disaster, in case of some kind of unforeseen situation, the king would have some security. And what David is saying is that I am giving my own personal security because, he says, verse 3, of my devotion to the house of my God. So this is worship language, the devotion, my devotion to God, my devotion to the worship of God. This is David who is the prototype worshiper of the Old Testament. He's the author of Psalms. David is the one, if you remember, who dances without fear of man in presumably an undignified way. He dances before God and before the people as the Ark of the Covenant is brought in. This David is now worshiping his devotion to the house of the Lord. He is now worshiping by divesting himself of an exorbitant amount of security and savings that he had. I have a treasure. He's giving that for the building of the house of God. Now, the amount is staggering. It says that he gave uh, 3,000 talents of gold and 7,000 talents of silver. A talent was about 75 pounds. So what he gave was about 200 and 25,000 pounds of gold and about 525,000 pounds of silver. One commentator said the way to just think about this is billions of dollars of wealth. Now, the numbers are important because God records them for us, but I think what's most important is not those kind of numbers, which I can't even get my head around that, but it's, it's his heart. I have provided out of my treasure, I have a treasure of my own because of my devotion to the Lord. It's his heart that is compelling. It's not just the size of the sacrifice, it's the motivation for the sacrifice. And he's not even going to live to see this. His son is going to build this temple. He's not even going to live 
to experience this. Well, following this, he goes on and kind of makes this appeal or this call for others to participate in verse 5. In verse 5, he says, And for all the work to be done by craftsmen, gold for the things of gold, silver for the things of silver. And then look at this question, verse 5, the second half. Who then will offer willingly, consecrating himself today to the Lord? He asks, who wants to consecrate himself to the Lord? Now, it seems like he should just be moving on to an offering, that he should just be passing the buckets around. It seems like he's given all this, and that this is time just to make an offering appeal, that he should just give a, get a thermometer out and say, well, we're at 3,000 talents of gold so far, and I gave that, and we've got this much more to go, and we can kind of see on the thermometer how much more we have to go. I mean, it seems like he should just be saying, look, we're going to have a dinner for all the rich people at 100 talents a plate. You can come and make a donation to the temple fund. But he doesn't do that. He does give an opportunity. He does say offer willingly, but look at his language. Who wants to consecrate himself? The, the language is important. This word consecrate means to ordain. It was a word in Exodus that when a priest was ordained, this is the word. They were consecrated. As a matter of fact, if you're using the ESV, which I'm reading from, there's a footnote at the bottom. And it says instead of consecrating himself, you could translate it ordaining himself. So he says, God's given us a vision to build a temple. I've given billions. Now who wants to get ordained? That's what he says. Who wants to ordain himself? Now, this isn't like an internet ordination. Anybody can get ordained now on the internet. But this is an ordination of the heart. Who wants to be set apart? A priest was someone that was set apart for the service of God. And he's saying, who wants their life set apart for God? Who wants to be a consecrated individual? So he is saying who wants to offer willingly, who then will offer willingly, but it is an offering of the heart that is primary. It is a consecrated giver, not just a consecrated gift, is what he talks about. So he's saying who wants to be a set-apart giver? Who wants to be a dedicated giver? Who wants to be a devoted giver? He's saying the, the offering baskets are coming by. Give into the offering baskets, but when it comes by, don't just drop a check in. Put your heart in there. Give your life, is what he's saying. Be set apart for the purposes of God. Willingly and voluntarily join me, he says. Who wants to offer willingly? Do this willingly, but do it by offering your life afresh to God. This is powerful to me because he had other options. He could have put a tax on all the people. I mean, that would be common to build, to have a, a, a national tax. He could have added to the regular requirements, and he could have taxed the people for the building of the temple. They had a temple tax later, and he could have made that tax now. That's how we build stadiums oftentimes today, is we tax the people to build a stadium for the team. He could have done that. He could have... Um, used the regular tithes that the people brought, which supported the Levites. He could have used the offerings that the people regularly brought for the building of the temple. But that's not what he does. He says, he says, who wants to voluntarily set themselves apart, consecrate themselves to God? Take my life and let it be, we sang this morning, consecrated, Lord, to thee. That's what he's saying. Who wants to say to the Lord, take my life? 
And, and then he follows that with, or actually he says right before that, there is an opportunity to give, who wants to offer willingly. But do you see, he's tying it to the heart, the life, the consecration of life. So it's not like a tip. It's not like a membership dues. It's not just like some generic project that we need to do. So let's get all the philanthropic people to make a donation and, you know, put their names on a stone outside or something like this. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about people who want to willingly give their lives with their finances being a subset of their lives. This is how Jesus says it in Matthew 6. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That's what he says. I gave my treasure, and there's no question that his heart is there. He did it because of devotion to the Lord. Who wants to set their hearts, who wants to set themselves apart to the Lord and offer willingly. The person who sets their heart apart for the Lord will find their finances going along with that. Well, look what happens. There is this tremendous response. In verses 6, 7, and 8, we see the leaders of the fathers' houses. They made freewill offerings, and there's all these various leaders of the tribes. We see what they gave. They give, verse 7, 5,000 talents and 10,000 derricks of gold, uh, 10,000 talents of silver, 18,000 talents of bronze, and 100,000 talents of iron. Uh, In verse 8, we see whoever had precious stones gave them to the treasury of the house of the Lord. Uh, Verse 9, then the people rejoiced because they had given willingly. Look at the language here. The people rejoiced. They gave willingly for with a whole heart. That's that consecration. With a whole heart, they had offered freely to the Lord. David the king also rejoiced. There is an absolute joy in this. It's not some painful, oh, we got to do this. Do I have to hear about this again, David? It's not that. It is just a joyful, willing. He uses the word rejoicing. People are setting themselves apart to God and gladly giving. Well, they're giving whatever they have. Precious jewels, he says. Precious stones that they gave. Whoever had them, they, they gave their precious stones. In two weeks, we're going to have an opportunity to make a pledge for the coming year of our giving towards our Generations Fund, which is for our building. And uh, I I think that's the same question. Who will offer, verse 5, who will offer willingly consecrating himself? That's the reason we've been talking about the Lord's mission. I've talked very little about the building. I've talked almost none. I remember one quote in one message about finances. That's been it in the series. Now we're going to talk about that in detail in both the family meetings. But part of that's been intentional because the goal has been to see the Lord and to see his mission and to give our hearts willingly to his mission with the belief that our finances follow our heart for his mission. We wouldn't want it other way, any other way. We wouldn't want people giving money but not their hearts. We wouldn't want people investing money in a building without a heart for what God is up to and what his mission is. That would be backwards. We want to have the heart, the Lord's grace, stir our heart for his mission. We want to see what he's done for us in Christ. We want to have a heart for others to meet Christ who don't know him and are far from him. And then we want to, uh, we want to be on that mission with our own lives, our own relationships, our own testimony and our own investment 
of our finances. So that's what we've been talking about in the previous weeks. Now, here's what David does after this. He then goes into prayer. And here is the sense of his prayer. After this huge offering, billions of dollars, all this stuff is present, he prays, and the prayer he prays reveals that he is not burdened, nor are the people burdened by an obligation to give. They are stunned by the privilege to give. That's it. It's not that I'm burdened but that I'm blown away that I have this privilege. Look at verse 10. Therefore, David blessed the Lord in the presence of all the assembly. And David said, blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our father forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom. O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. In these verses as he's praying, he's really praying, Lord, this is all about you. I mean, if there's never a sense where anybody said, well, it's not really about the building, it's about you, that's it. He's sitting, presumably, all this stuff is sitting in front of him. He's praying, it says in verse 10, uh, in the presence of all the assembly. So I don't know if this prayer was later. I'm not quite sure. But if we just read the narrative, it appears like there's this, everybody's emptying out their jewels. He's emptying out his personal security, his treasure. And everybody's gathered in front of all these resources, which must must have been quite a sight. And then he's not saying, wow, you guys are awesome. I mean, I say, look at Israel. Look what we did. I can't believe it. High fives all around. He's not doing that. He's saying, if this is about God, he's saying, God, yours is the kingdom. Yours is the power. Blessed are you forever. Yours is the greatness. We look at a stack of billions of dollars and we say, you're great. We look at the resources and we say, you're glorious. He says, yours is the victory in verse 11. There is a victory that happens here. David led in a lot of military victories. I'm I'm guessing this victory is greater. It's one thing to go out and kill people that that are trying to kill you. It's another thing to have victory for God to have victory over the heart so that someone says, I'm open handed with what you've entrusted me and I give it for your purposes because I glory in you. He, he shows that every he shows that God is ruler over everything. Yours is the kingdom, verse eleven. You are exalted as head over all. That means you rule and reign sovereign. Verse twelve. Riches and honor come from you. You rule over all. He says it again. In your hand are power and might. In your hand is to make great and to give strength. He's just piling up these terms that communicate God is omnipotent. That is, He's all powerful. God is sovereign, that is, he rules over all. He's piling up these worship terms to say, God, you are glorious, you're victorious, you're majestic, you're powerful. What's the purpose of all this? Well, the purpose of all this, I think, is to reveal the nature of God, but it's to tie two things together. That the greatness of the sacrifice that David and the people made is corresponding to their vision of God. It's their vision of God that has ultimately empowered the sacrifices they've made. It's not that David's just excited about having a great building with some cool gold and silver in it and some stones. It's not around, you know, placed around the 
building. It's not that he's just really, man, I'm so enamored with what this is going to look like. It's not like that's his driving force. He's enamored with God and what he's like. And in response, they have acted out of their vision of God. That is always the case, by the way. I live out of my vision of God. When I worry, and I'm anxious, and I am at various times, when I worry about something, my vision of God is cloudy. I don't see him as all-powerful, like David's talking about here. Because if I did, I wouldn't be worried. I would know he's got this all in control. When I worry about finances, I don't see that, God, you make everything, you own everything, you give me all that I need, you are faithful. I'm I'm doubting his faithfulness. When I'm faced with a problem and I'm burdened by it, I don't know what the way is forward. I've just lost vision that God is greater than that problem, that he's demonstrated his faithfulness in Christ, and that he has all power. When When I feel discouraged because I've repeated a sin. I've done the same sin again that I promised I wouldn't do and that I'm trying not to do. I've lost vision for the power of the resurrection, that Jesus is alive, that Jesus has defeated sin, that Jesus is empowering me and will not only forgive me, which he does, but will help me to change. I've lost, I've lost that vision. I'm, I'm feeling inward. I'm feeling burdened. I'm, 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 I'm feeling trapped and enslaved by my sin. I'm not believing truth about God at that moment and what Christ has done. So do you see, we always live out of our vision of God. Their vision of God is that he's glorious, so empty it out, and let's build a place that will facilitate his worship among his people. It's all about you. Secondly, the next part of their prayer is really it's all from you. I love this section of the prayer, verses 14 to 17. But who am I and what is my people, David prays? that we should be able thus to offer willingly. For all things come from you, and of your own have we given you. For we are strangers before you and sojourners, as all our fathers were. Our days on the earth are like a shadow, and there is no abiding. O Lord our God, all this abundance that we have provided for building you a house for your holy name comes from your hand, and it is all your own. I know, my God, that you test the heart and have pleasure in uprightness. In the uprightness of my heart, I have freely offered all these things. And now I have seen your people who are present here offer freely and joyously to you. Here's what happens. David considers the greatness of God, and there's a resizing that takes place. Whenever we see the power of God, the glory of God, the rulership of God, there's a resizing, and we become small in our eyes. We become insignificant. Not insignificant like God doesn't love us. I don't mean that, like God's opposed to us because he's not if we're believers at all. I don't mean that. But I mean insignificant in what we can really accomplish on our own compared to God. When we see his power, we become small in our eyes. And look what he says. He says, who am I? Verse 14, who am I? A lot of people would argue, wow, you're somebody. You're the king. You are somebody, David. He's saying, who am I? implicit here is I'm nothing. Who who are my people? Who are my people? What are we? What are we doing here building a house where God is going to meet with his people? What, What is going on? I mean, he thinks about their history. The nation of Israel was nothing. God looked out over all the peoples of the world and decided to pick a guy named Abram. I don't know why he chose Abram. That's his choice. 
He picked Abram and said, I'm going to make you a people. Abram was among a people, later his name became Abraham. He was among a people who were moon worshipers. So God looks down among the moon worshipers and says, I I picked this guy. I'm going to make a nation out of you. I'm going to give you a land. And one day I'm going to send a savior through your people that will save the world, give his life for the world, Jesus Christ. And he's like, who are we? What? What are we? I mean, after they became a people and began to grow a little bit, they were enslaved by Egypt. What kind of great people were they? They were the slaves of the Egyptians. No rights, no power, not thought of. They were lowly, doing menial work until God came in and took his people, which had been oppressed and enslaved, and freed them. The book of Exodus. And now he's given them their own land, and now they're their own nation, just as he promised. But David's like, what am I doing here? David was a shepherd. He was a shepherd, the last one thought of, of his brothers to be the king. They had to go call for him when they were coming to pick the king out of this family. It was like David was an afterthought. Oh, yeah, there's we got like one other scrawny kid out there in the, with the sheep. Oh, yeah, bring him in. He's the king. So their people were unimpressive. David was unimpressive. Who am I? What is my people that we should be able to offer like this? See, he has been run over by the grace freight train. I mean, grace is empowered, just run him over. When we touch grace, when grace touches us is a better way to say it, there will be these kind of moments in our lives. How am I even saved? How did I even hear the gospel? Why did I even respond? What a privilege to be a part of a church. If this isn't your church, then apply that to your church. If you're visiting here, you're part of a different church, then you ask yourself, who am I to be part of the people of God in the church I'm in? Or here, if you're part of this church, what am I doing among the people of God? This is the grace of God. What am I doing to be able to serve his purposes? He's blown away by it all. He's not impressed with their great offering. He's impressed with the grace of God. Look what he says next. For all things come from you, and of your own we have given you. There's billions of dollars there, and here's what he's saying. This really isn't that big of a deal. I mean, it's a big deal, but it's not a big deal because you already owned all of this. C.S. Lewis wrote this. He said, it's like a small child going to his father and saying, Daddy, give me sixpence to buy you a birthday present. C.S. Lewis was British. I don't know how much sixpence is, but some amount to buy a gift. So the kid goes to the dad, give me sixpence to buy you a birthday present. Of course the father does, and and he is pleased with the child's present. It is nice and proper, but only an idiot would think that the father is sixpence to the good in the transaction. You've seen this. I've done this with my kids. When you were a little kid, you probably did it with your parents. Hey, I want to get you a present, but I don't have you any money. You're four years old. Get a job. No, I didn't say that. But uh, I didn't have any money. Dad, can I have some money? Yeah, you can have some money. Give them some money. They go to the store, buy a little something, wrap it up. Give it. You're really blessed. It's encouraging. But it's not like you got something you didn't already have. You had the money that you gave them that bought the gift. This is what he's saying about God. God's not sitting up there going, 3,000 talents of gold? How did you know? Who told you? That's exactly what I was hoping for. It's not like God's, oh, man, okay, now it's complete. I owned everything except that. Oh, now, this isn't God. God owns it all. David is saying in one way, giving to the Lord is absurd because he, he already owns everything. Now, it's still meaningful. It's still, a, it's still our management of what he has given. It still represents a sacrifice in a sense from our point of view. 
But it's not something that he didn't already have. And David's saying, we're not giving anything we didn't receive. Here's how the New Testament says that. 1 Corinthians 4, 7. What do you have that you did not receive? The Corinthians are arrogant. And so Paul says, okay, you're arrogant. Uh, By the way, what do you have that wasn't given to you by God? Boy, that just cuts to the chase. Well, everything is his. That's the point. We are using what God has given us to manage for his glory. What do you have that you did not receive? You know, when we view life that way, that way of grace, when you view life through the lens of what do I have that I did not receive, all of life will look different at that point. Because I'll be living in grace. I'll be breathing the air of grace rather than the air of my demands, my expectations, my grumbling and complaining because other people aren't doing what I want them to do, my cynicism, my criticism, my self-righteous judgment of others. Hey, when I'm living with the lens of, what do you have that you didn't receive? God has been so gracious to me. When I'm living with that, everything looks different. My language is different. My countenance is different. My heart is different. There's joy that replaces the death that is present in that kind of selfish arrogance. There's life in that. And they're experiencing life. They're just giving stuff away. Because it was God's to begin with, is what he says. David's just amazed, verse 15, for we're strangers before you and sojourners. All of our fathers were. Their days on the earth are like a shadow and there's no abiding. He's saying, look, who are we to do this? Secondly, we're only giving you what is yours anyway. Thirdly, we're just passing through. This is amazing that on our way through, you allow us to participate with you in the worship of you in doing something significant for your glory. I can't believe we get to do this. We're just passing through is what he says. Do you see the language of David's prayer? He's not burdened by an obligation. He is blown away. He's stunned. He is awed by the privilege of participating. It all depends on our vision of God. When we are gripped by the gospel, we will have moments where we say, this is unreal. Pinch my soul. Am I in a dream? I don't know how you pinch a soul, but um, pinch me. Is this real? I mean, I can't believe my sins are forgiven. The heavenly father is my father. He's adopted me in his family. He's showered me with love. He's forgiven me, and he's given me a cause to live for, his cause and his purpose, to bring good news to people that don't know the Lord. How can it get any better? I'm the richest person I know when I think in those terms. That I I get to have the life I have before the Lord? God has been so good to us. What do I have that I did not receive? All things are from you. And none of your own we've given you. And here's the very last thing he prays. I'll be super brief here. In verse 18, he says, O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, our fathers, keep forever such purposes and thoughts in the hearts of your people. Look at the verse before, at the end of 17. He says, I've seen your people who are present here offering freely and joyously. And then he says, keep this in our hearts. He's saying, everybody just unloaded a ton of money for the building of his house. Everybody's free. Everybody's celebrating. Nobody's in, in the death grip of their stuff, fearfully grasping their stuff, hoarding what they have as if it's really theirs to begin with. Nobody's doing that. Everybody's letting it go. Everybody's celebrating. Everybody's rejoicing. And so his prayer in verse 18 is, God, keep us right here. You ever had a moment like that? We say, I just want this moment to last forever. Ladies, your husband says that about your wedding. That was the moment. I want it to last forever. 
I hope. I I want this moment. As a song says, you're stuck in a moment and you can't get out of it. I want this moment to be stuck, that we can never get out of this. And then he prays that the next generation will experience the same thing. Verse 9, grant to Solomon, my son, a whole heart. They gave with their whole heart, he said, to keep your commandments and your testimonies, that he may build a palace for which I've made provision. So he's saying, I pray that Solomon won't mess it up. I pray the next generation won't go idolatrous on us, but the next generation will have the same heart that we have right now at this moment, that Solomon will build this temple and that the people of God will be faithful to the God of this temple. So God, this is an amazing moment. This is amazing. We are free from our stuff. We are free from our greed. We're envisioned with your power and your glory and your rule. And we're stepping back and we're not saying, God, do more for me. We're saying, who am I to get to be a part of this? Incredible, God. Keep that moment, Lord, and keep the next generation living in this. That's his prayer. Keep us focused on grace is what he's really praying. There's nothing of dry obligation in this passage. There's joyous privilege is what it's all about. That's what this passage demonstrates and teaches about the Lord's setting his people free, free to worship him. In two weeks, we'll have an opportunity to give, I mentioned, and uh, again, we'll talk about that tonight or Wednesday, whichever meeting you can come to. But as we prepare for that, I want to ask you some questions from this text. I want to ask myself some questions from this text. Are you, as you consider giving yourself, are you burdened by an obligation? Does it feel like a pressure or an obligation? Or are you stunned by the privilege like these folks are, and David in particular? The difference is how is grace affecting my heart, I believe. Are you living with a sense of who am I that I am able to participate with God's people? So is your driving sense, who am I that I know the Lord? And who am I that I get to participate in the body of Christ? This is unreal. Pinch me. Is that the sense you have? Is that the sense I have? Are you living with an awareness that this is all his to begin with? Do you know the freedom that comes when you see him as the one who has greatness and power and the one who owns it all? Do you live your life with an awareness, this is all his? I'm just sort of moving around the numbers and managing what he has. That's all I'm doing. I'm just taking what he's given me and I'm managing it as best I can for his purposes, according to his scripture, as he leads me by the Spirit. Is that how we're living Or are we living with a sense of entitlement that this is mine, this is all mine, and I'll give a percentage to God for his purposes? There's a very big difference in saying this is mine, I'm going to give God some, as opposed to this is God's, and I'm using it, stewarding, managing it all for his purposes. Do you see giving as worship? I don't know any passage of Scripture that portrays giving as worship like this one. I mean, this is a worship service with joy. Joy. They're not just trying to fund the temple. They're worshiping the Lord together in freedom. And they're praying these profound prayers of God's power. Are you looking to God to do something in your heart in this season and maintain it? I love that prayer. Lord, we see you moving. We see people responding freely. 
Lord, this is this prayer, Lord, our fathers, keep forever these purposes and thoughts in our hearts. I had somebody grab me in the, uh, audit- uh, in the lobby last week and say, I, they were very encouraging to me, it meant a lot, but they were basically just saying, I've really appreciated this series because it's causing me to think about other people that need the Lord. And so I'm thinking about, when can I have a conversation? What can I say about the Lord to this person? I'm praying for people. It's just causing me to look outward, the person said to me, which was so encouraging because that is the goal for my own life and for all of us. Uh, So, so encouraging. If that's what the Lord's doing in any of us in these days, then that's my prayer. Lord, would you just keep us stuck in this moment that we are outwardly oriented in our hearts, that we're caring about people, whether they live in Frisco Square or a tribe in Cameroon, wherever they are, we, they are on our hearts and we want to be praying and strategizing and doing what we can to reach them, oh Lord. Last question is just this, have you prayed, and maybe not, that's fine, but now's the time, have you prayed about how the Lord would call you to participate? Last week we talked about praying for open doors. We're not a hype kind of church on stuff like this. Uh, I trust we're not. We certainly don't want to be, and I trust we're not in any way manipulative about these kinds of things. I just want to appeal that you go to the Lord. That's it. Go to the Lord and say, Lord, you own everything. How do you want me to participate in this project that you have before our church for your mission? That's it. Just go to him and ask and see what the Lord would how he might lead you and how he might lead me. Because I want us to know this joy, this abandon, this worship, this gratitude, this experience that they're having, and I just want to live in the good of that. That we've been so drenched in grace that grace just flows out of us. We're just people who are generous with our time, generous with our gifts, generous with our stuff, generous in hospitality, generous in our judgments of others meaning that we're charitable in the way we view other people. This kind of generosity, it's just a sign of the gospel. You show show me someone who has an overflowing, a Christian with an overflowing heart of generosity, I'll show you someone for whom the Spirit of God is living in them with the power of the gospel. I don't want to be stingy with my compliments, stingy with my encouragement, hoarding my resources, hoarding my friendships and relationships, hoarding my time, hoarding my emotional energy, grabbing it all for me. I don't want to be that person. And I know you don't either. I want to be the kind of person who says, Lord, who am I? Lord, put me in wherever you want me to do, wherever you want me to go, whatever you want me to do, however you want me to spend. I want to be the person who just is overflows, and that is the work of grace in our lives. So I want to be this people. I pray this is us where David looks up and says, they're offering freely and joyously to you so that you could say, keep us this way. May God do that in us, and may God keep us this way for his glory. Let's pray. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit www.gracechurchfrisco.org.